welcome to episode 280 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In this episode, I'm talking to Mike Tabor, author of The Single Founder Handbook, a step-by-step guide for bootstrap software entrepreneurs. Well, hello there, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing, Justin? I'm good. I'm doing great. So, uh, well, we brought you on the show because you're releasing a, a great new handbook called The Single Founder Handbook. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, the inspiration behind that and, and I guess what you're trying to achieve by releasing it and um, just as much top line info as you can. Sure. So uh, I started it back in December, which was probably about uh, pro- going on four months or so ago right at this point. And um, I, I had quit consulting back last June. So it had been about five or six months after that was was when I started it. And I throughout that time, I, I was actually kind of burnt out from consulting, which is kind of led to my, um, I, I decided to just back off from consulting for a while just to take some time off. Um, and it took about six months for that burnout to kind of wear out. And at that point, I was kind of looking around trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. I mean, I've got Audit Shark on the side that I've been working on. And I realized that one of my bucket list items that has been sitting there for a very, very, very long time was to write a book. And of course, running the Startups for Us of Us podcast with Rob Walling, one of the things that you know we keep seeing is the same types of questions over and over again. And it just kind of occurred to me one day is like, hey, you know, there's there's all these thoughts that are kind of kicking around in my head that I'd really like to just get out of my head because you know it's it's almost like what just just it's almost like what Jason calls the madness where there's this thought Actually, in your that's, head. That, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry. Jason's Jason's meme is Lux Surface Area. Oh. Justin, who is me, my meme is the madness. That he's not taking credit for my meme. Forget that. I apologize. <laughs> All right, anyway. So anyway. Um so yeah, anyway, I uh I, I kind of got the madness there for a little while and I'm like, oh, I I really just, you know, I've got the time right now. I may as well just buckle down and do this. So I did. And um I was you gonna know, say it, four months is pretty outrageous. Yeah, it's it, it's funny because I actually probably could have finished it much sooner than I did. Um, there was uh, a, a brief period in there, probably six or seven weeks, where I just did not get very much done, and it was it, you know I just kind of ran into this roadblock where I was trying to write and I just couldn't write, and um, you know I just ran into you know it's the typical writer's block, you know, and uh, so I could have finished it much much quicker than so, I did. So almost two and a half months. I, yeah, I probably could have finished it quicker than that. It so, probably would have taken me a month and a half if I had really buckled down and just was able to write the whole way through. Was that because you were just because you just had your topics set for you by the Micropreneur Academy already? Um, no, it the was questions just, that people asked. Yeah, well, what I did was I originally when I first decided to start writing it, what I did was I set up a mailing list, and I, you know, because I had this thought in my head, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to write about, and I said, well, you know, I've got. You know, I really should start marketing this at least a little bit before I decide to go out and write the whole thing and then find out whether or not it kind of fits with people. So what happened was I set up this mailing list and I started writing. And then one of the first emails that I send to people when they sign up for the mailing list was, you know, what what business challenges do you have that you're facing that you're having problems with? Just give just give me three. And I had like more than 100 people email me like all of their different business challenges. So I had 300 plus responses from people like, I'm having a problem with this, I'm having a problem with that. And there was a huge amount of overlap between them. So it gave me a very concrete list of things to write about. So figuring out what to write about wasn't hard. It was figuring out what words to put to those things, which was the more difficult part. 
So who is the ideal person that this book is for? So there's a couple of different types of people. And uh, I'd say they broadly categorize into uh, probably three or four top uh, types of people. And the first one would be the software entrepreneur or software developer who wants to become an entrepreneur or wants to build a product and sell it on the side. Um, the second one I would say is somebody who's tried to do that before and failed at it. And I've, I have no shortage of things that I've tried before and just did not work out. And I think in retrospect, you look back at a lot of those things and you can figure out what went wrong, but it, you know, obviously you have to go through that experience and do all the wrong things first. And then you look back at it and say, oh, well, I should have done X or I should have done Y or I should have seen this and I didn't or I didn't realize that that was going to be a problem. So those are probably, you know, a couple of the different types of people um, that, that I would say it's for. Why should we listen to Mike Tabor? Like why? <laughs> what, what, what's happened in your life that, that you kind of feel qualified to write this book? Sure. So. I've seen a lot. Uh, that's kind of the first thing. I mean, with Rob Wallen, I've run the Startups for Rest of Us podcast for five years now. And we get a lot of questions that are, a lot of them are the same things over and over again. So just by virtue of that alone, we see a lot of different things that people are doing and people are trying. And it gives us a lot more visibility than we might otherwise have. So I think if you're in a position where you've only ever worked on one thing before and you've never really taken a hard look or in-depth uh, view of what other people are doing and, and working on, then it's probably a little bit more difficult to make judgment calls or an analysis of what sorts of things work and what sorts of things don't. But because I'm plugged into you know, the, the podcast and MicroConf and the Micropreneur Academy, I see a lot of different things that if I were just working on my own business, I wouldn't necessarily see. So I get that broad view that I just you know, most people are not going to have. Have you, I mean, have you applied the principles of this book to any of your own projects or businesses and seen success? And, and what, what are those? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a whole section in there that I put in there for uh, marketing your first product. And basically what I do is I walk through the essential elements of a marketing plan. And within that, you've got all these different things. Like you've got to set up what your goal is, what your milestones are. You have to have some sort of a positioning statement, a value proposition. And these are the types of things that you want to do before you even start building your product or talking to people about it because it helps you solidify in your mind what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Because if you can't explain it in a short amount of time to somebody, one, they're probably going to get bored. But two, if you, if you don't have the ability to make it concise, then it makes it difficult for them to really understand what it is that you're trying to get at and why they should buy into it. Is that what you guys did with MicroConf, for example? Um, I mean, we have done that with MicroConf, but I mean, it's, it's more of a general marketing strategy to begin with. I mean, if you can't, if you can't clearly and concisely talk about what it is that you're trying to offer somebody, then how are you going to do that on a landing page, for example, when you can't have that dialogue with somebody? It makes it very, very difficult to do that. But if you sit down and you do the marketing plan, then it allows you to kind of mentally walk through the exercise of, hey, what is this person going to think when they're coming to this website? Um, and obviously, there's a big difference between having you and I having a conversation versus you visiting my website and expecting my website to tell you everything that you need to know to make the judgment call about whether or not that product or service is for you. Okay. Okay, um, so I'm just looking through um, the chapters here, and there's a lot of interesting stuff. But one of the one of the things I'm interested in hearing uh, your take, just a kind of brief overview. You put a chapter founders and co-founders. Yep. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. 
So it is called the Single Founder Handbook. And my background, generally speaking, is as somebody who runs his own business. I mean, I do own the Micropreneur Academy. I co-own it with Rob Wallen. Um, but that's one of bus- one of the businesses that I've owned. I've owned, I think, five or six different businesses since dating back to like 1999. Um, and there's an actual, you know, According to the government, different businesses, not just different products under the same same okay. umbrella. The real um, deal. Yeah, yeah. So, but in that section, what I do is I I essentially talk about the pros and cons of having a founder, uh, having a co-founder, and I, I do take the stance that. I don't necessarily think that having a co-founder is a bad idea, but I do think having the wrong co-founder is a bad idea. It's actually worse than going it going it alone. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very valid point. And so, would you would you consider Rob Walling a co-founder in in various projects? Well, I mean, just in life, is he is is Rob your co-founder? Well, he's he's definitely the co-founder of the Micropreneur Academy, which, as I said, is it's one of the two businesses that I currently own. Um, and obviously anything that goes along with, uh, either microconf or the start of the rest of his podcast or the micro Academy, um, you know, he's strictly a co-founder in that, in that sense, um, with moon river software, which is my own business. I wouldn't say he's a co-founder, but I definitely talk to him about different things that are going on and treat him as a, as a mentor. And, you know, he's not officially a mastermind group member or anything like that, but, you know, if I'm having problems with something, I I don't necessarily hesitate to get to run something by him and just say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" Hey, um, I was just thinking back in the day, how did you meet Rob? And you know, I'm looking for like a romantic story here, like <laughs> something. <laughs> um, so the uh, the story goes back to I think 2005 or so, and uh, Rob and I were. Uh, unbeknownst to each other, we were reading each other's blogs because we were doing the same types of things. And, you know, I was trying to bootstrap my own business and run it out of my basement. And he was kind of doing the same thing and trying to build products on the side. And we were both doing consulting at the same time. And we didn't know who each other were, but we just happened to stumble across each other's blogs on the internet. So he had, uh, he had put a product out on his website um, for sale because he's like, oh, I, 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 I've tried to make this work. It's not working for me. I just want to get rid of it and I want to sell it to somebody. And I saw that he was posting it. I was like, huh, I'd, I'd be interested in that. So hmm. I what emailed him. It was called uh, chitchat.net. It was hmm. a forum. It was basically a .net forum software package. Oh, yeah. So uh, I talked to him about it, uh, arranged for the sale. I bought it from him. And then after that, we just kind of stayed in touch. And it was a couple of years later uh, when he was starting to build the Micropreneur Academy that he realized he needed a little bit of help from somebody mm. who could also do the same types of things. And he, I guess he went through his Rolodex and I came up on the short list. Uh, we talked about it, worked something out, and I kind of signed on as the uh, the co-founder of the Micropreneur Academy at that time. And did you start podcasting like before the micro I can never say it the micropreneur academy was built or was that something that was to promote the micropreneur academy um the the podcast came afterwards so we started the micropreneur academy in 2009 and the podcast didn't start until 2010 and then we started microconf in 2011 so that's kind of the uh, the progression of things. And if you think about it as a business, um, we kind of did it backwards as well, because usually you think of things that will, you have different products that will kind of lead up the chain. So we should have started with the podcast, which would have been free. And then the Micropreneur Academy, which is a paid paid community, and then Microconf would have been a you know higher price point. Um, you know, yeah, that makes awesome. sense. It's, but, it's actually, it's an interesting path and it makes sense. 
Yeah, but like I said, we did it. We did it a little bit backwards, and we we started the Micropreneur Academy first, and then we said, okay, we'll we'll do this free thing, and now we'll do this, you know, higher price point thing. Um, didn't really think about it at the time. It just it was just kind of was the natural progression that came up for us for that. Some something that I also thought was interesting um, is your thoughts about competition. Um, when I when I first started getting into this whole bootstrapping thing and just thinking about it. And starting discussing with Jason, I, I was under the impression that competition was super important, and if someone was already doing something, that I shouldn't do it. Um, but I, I've, you know, I've kind of since found that that isn't really the case. I was wondering what your take on competition was. How should we think about competition? Should we look at competition? What should we generally do? So I think you should definitely look at competition, and I think you should use it as a, kind of a data point more than anything else. But I, I was definitely of the mindset a while back that, oh, somebody else is doing this, I shouldn't. Um, and it's partly, I think, an aversion in many ways as a developer to doing things that other people have done. And maybe that boils down to you know, code, re code reuse is so ingrained in us that we don't want to do something that's already been done before. Uh, but at the same time, knowing that somebody else has done something or is currently doing something is a good data point to have because it in some ways serves as a sort of validation that what you're doing is something that people will pay for. So let me give you an example. If you were to go out and build uh, a piece of software that you know sends out emails, for example, um, there are loads of companies out there that do that right now. So MailChimp, Drip, you know, the constant contact, the list goes on. I mean, there's probably 30 of them that do this type of thing. So you can look at that one of two ways. One, either there's way too much competition and I shouldn't even bother, or there's an opportunity there because there are so many different people who are doing it. The market is extremely fragmented and it gives you an opportunity and you just have to find out what exactly that opportunity is that, you know, is causing so many of these companies to spring up and enter into this space. Um, so you can think of it one of those two ways, but going back to the to the reason why people don't go into those, I, I think it has a lot to do with fear because people say, oh, well, I don't want to do that because somebody else is doing it, you know, again, partially because of the fact that they're, uh, you know, they don't want to do something that's already been done. They, they feel better about doing some sort of a greenfield product. Um, but at the same time, it's a very nice data point to have to know that other businesses are making that work. Yeah. So so essentially, you've got the, the difference between like the blue ocean strategy and the red ocean strategy. Um, and I, I think there's, there's valid uh, arguments that you can make for either one. But again, all it is, is it's a data point. It's, it has nothing to do with whether you should or should not do it. It's, you need to use it as just that one data point. When you're working with developers who come into uh, the Micropreneur Academy and other people that you've worked with in MicroConf, do you see their mindset shift from a developer to thinking about owning a business and 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 how and and how can you kind of in, make that happen like what would you what, what advice would you give to people to make that shift happen i think it takes a while i don't think that it's something that happens overnight because most people who are developers turned in, into entrepreneurs you know aren't necessarily coming from management positions um some of them are don't get me wrong but i think that a lot of them have been developers and writing code for so long that they don't necessarily understand a lot of the business side of things they don't understand the marketing side of things so that stuff tends to take a while um and i think that there's a there's a big mind shift that happens 
big mindset shift that happens once people start to realize that the code is not everything. And in fact, the code is actually very, very little of your business. It's all about having a, a solid marketing engine and being able to get out in front of people and acquire money faster than you're spending. Um, and that's a very weird way to think about it as a developer, because a developer, to them, the code is everything. The product is everything. Without the product, you don't have a business. But at the same time, without a repeatable and sustainable marketing engine, you, you don't have a business either. It's a massive mental shift. I mean, how, how can we get developers from A to B? Because getting from you know, the mindset of a developer to the mindset of an entrepreneur is, I don't know, it, to me, like marketing is just the most boring thing in the world. And even to this day, even though I've built Plugio and sold Plugio, had a successful <laughs> exit with it, I still just just don't really like marketing. And mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we think about that? How do we change our mindset about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that in some ways you have to think of marketing as a game. So I'll give you an example. Right now I'm running a, a, a marketing campaign for my book where uh, it's I'm running it through a, a website called thunderclap.it. And essentially with that website, what you do is you invite people who are supporting what it is that you're working on and you try and get them to support what you're doing with uh, social networking. So whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr, um, they essentially sign up with those things and then whenever your launch is going to go live, pretty much everyone will post at the same time whatever message it is that they've agreed to send out. So you end up with this massive thunderclap of like activity all around whatever it is that you're launching. So whether it's a, a fundraiser or a book or a product launch, you know, there's all these different things you can do, but you're creating this, you know, social, you know, thunderclap of, of, of presence for whatever it is you're launching. You sent, you sent me a link to it, and I was really impressed. And um, just to give a little bit more clarity, the way that it works is you basically give Thunderclap, dot, Thunderclap it, I guess is, is what they want you to call it. You give Thunderclap it, um, your kind of, you give it access to your Twitter account or your Facebook or whatever. And so that's how it, it posts out the message. So people will put the message in when they sign up on your behalf, and then all of a sudden, at one time, it will just send them all out, which is, right. which is a, great, a great concept. Mm-hmm. And you get to see your social reach, which is also really clever. So, and right. that's that's kind of gamified. Um, when when I went to your page, I could see that you already had something like three hundred and fifty thousand people in in your social reach when this thing gets thunderclapped. Right. So I'm guessing you, that's going to help your uh, <laughs> help the sales of your book. I, I would hope so. I, I think it's up to about four hundred and fifteen thousand right now. So you know, even in just the short time between yesterday and today, when we talked, it's gone up by probably thirty thousand or so. And my own personal social reach within Twitter is, I think, around 3,000 people. It's not like I have a huge number of followers. However, you know, I know people and they know people. And, you know, you look at the reach that you can achieve from even just 100 or 200 people, and it can be pretty substantial. So I think that when you start looking at things like that and trying to figure out from like an engineering standpoint, it's like, okay, this is my goal. How do I achieve that? And you start looking at marketing uh, objectives as essentially engineering objectives. It's, it's really interesting. And th this is what Jason calls Lux Surface Air. I mean, you're, you're seriously increasing your Lux Surface Air. So your target, I guess, is 500,000 uh, accounts to, to yes. get into 500,000 streams? Sure, that's that's the unofficial goal. <laughs> I mean, uh, according to Thunderclap, it I've already reached the uh, the hundred supporter mark, but um, it wasn't really the number of people supporting it so much as it was the total surface area that I was looking at. That's crazy. I mean, I I, I mean, just if you could email me once you've done the the launch, I'd be really interested to see what kind of effect that had. Is there any way of tracking it back? 
They do. So they have uh, paid accounts that you can uh, purchase. Like I paid $100 for mine, uh, which is kind of a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things for yeah. running a business. Um, and that was just so that no matter what, it would be guaranteed to go out. Because if you sign up for a free account and let's say that you don't get to 100, then uh, let's say that you don't get to 100 supporters, then it won't be sent out. But with any of their paid accounts, it will. So I paid, I think there was another level underneath it for $45 that I could have gone for, but I didn't. And I, I went for the $100 one and it allows me some additional options and stuff that I don't know as I'll, I'll use because I don't think I have time to. But again, it just allows me to um, see some statistics about what's going on. Now there's one level higher up, which is $500, which gives me apparently very, very detailed statistics, but I haven't really looked at that to see exactly what it offers or how it would look or anything like that because i don't even know if it would be useful well switching gears for a second one thing um i do as a developer just going back to this whole developer entrepreneur thing um is build stuff because i get great ideas i get the madness about things and i build it out and then i get it to this kind of point where it's like beginning to be something and then i realize oh crap this is really going to be a lot of work to just go the whole way with this thing <laughs> so what you know what what advice would you give to um i don't know what what you call that problem but they're just you know keeping on building it the other oh, shiny new object problem maybe it is what advice would you give to developers over that uh so are you referring specifically to building a new product i guess i'm referring to just this cycle of like getting excited about something building something then getting bored of it then getting excited building something new then getting bored of it and never kind of sticking with never it, finishing never finishing taking it through to the you know what it takes to to build an entire business yeah i think that that's uh, you know that's a really hard problem to solve in some ways because it is partially uh, about the who the person is because there are, you know it, you you look at different psychological studies and there are people who are very very good at starting things but they're not real good at finishing them and then there's you know the opposite where people are really good at finishing things but they're terrible at starting them because they don't, just don't even know where to start um, so you kind of have to be able to force yourself to bridge the divide between the two. But I think that it makes it easier when you start seeing that you're making progress. So it, whatever way that works for you, because everybody's different, it's almost like bug tracking systems. I mean, there's a billion different bug tracking systems out there because everyone likes to see things just a little bit different. And I think that when you're working on projects, the same thing goes. I mean, you really need to take a look at how it is that you work and what drives you forward. And I actually cover that in my book a little bit, which specifically talks about you need to understand and you didn't know exactly what it is that motivates you and moves you forward. But how does it work for you? What, what, what drives you forward? So for me, it's seeing results. And I think that you have to figure out what sort of quantifiable results there are that you're going to be able to achieve. And you almost make a conscious effort to avoid doing the things where it's going to be a very long road to see any sort of results. Um, so you have to essentially set up milestones that you know that are achievable in some way, shape or form. Well, what do you mean by results? Like, do you mean like customers or do you mean, oh, I, you know, I, I've finished these four uh, classes. I finished coding these four classes here. I mean, it, it depends on specifically what you're looking for. Because if it's if you're trying to look at revenue, then you have to look at customers. If you're looking at features and, you know, getting the product completed, then you have to look at the features that you're implementing. And, you know, maybe it boils down to classes for you. I probably wouldn't look at that, look at it that way. I would look at functional use cases, for example. Um, but it depends on the specific problem area that you're trying to address, because there's a very big difference between trying to make progress with marketing versus of uh, trying to make progress with your code and the product functionality itself. 
mean, I'm working on a side project right now that I've been working on since February and, um, it's, you know, it's pretty intense and, uh, just whenever I'm developing it in between changing nappies or diapers, as you call them over here, like <laughs> I don't, I, it, it was definitely always going to be at least a three month bill before I saw anything. And, um, how have I been motivating myself? I mean, just, I don't know, just, I just got to get it done. It's, it's like an unending dirge, just, just force through it, get it done. You know, <laughs> but that but that falls apart at some point. I mean, you can't do that forever. There, I, I've uh, I've seen people offer this v- advice where it's like, oh, you just have to power through it. And sometimes, you know, your world just does not work that way. Um, and it's very difficult to power through certain things. I mean, you can do it sometimes, but you can't pull an all nighter every night, for example. Oh, and it sucks when you get to the parts that you really don't want to do. You know, and yes. then you just lose momentum, and you mm-hmm. just it's kind of sitting there for two days, and you're thinking. I don't want to go back. In fact, I, I do have a kind of trick for that. So when whenever I get to a big piece that I really don't want to do, I just try and find the lightest, most irrelevant part of it that is going to be the easiest to make, and I'll just make that. And then I'll just, from there, I'll just make, oh, the next bolt-on piece to that and just keep on working through, thinking of it in absolutely tiny, tiny baby steps. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's another great way to approach that particular problem because you need to you need to start somewhere and you need to get that ball rolling and momentum I think is the you know the the piece that a lot of people have a lot of problems with um, and that's why techniques like the Pomodoro technique and don't break the chain and things like that work really well is because it gets you started um, and I even found when when writing the book or you know doing various other things that getting started is the hardest part um, I remember a couple of years ago you said that you had started going to the gym and uh, <laughs> you know you <laughs> oh, know you as had well to as- pick my weak spot didn't you <laughs> well you know <laughs> We are on a podcast publicly about it. All right, so. go on, yeah, go on then. But but the fact is that like you have to get to a point where like you're over those initial hurdles and go, that those first couple of days, those first couple of weeks are going to be the hardest in the world. Um, and and I, and I know that because back in December I decided, hey, I'm going to go to the gym six times a week, and it was I started on Sunday and by Thursday my wife looked at me and she just said, you're not going to make it. <laughs> um, but I did. I mean, I I was able to power through it and I I made it throughout the entire month. So, you know, it was, it was nice to be able to achieve that. But at the same time, those first six days were the hardest days of the entire month. But after that, it really wasn't all that bad. One of the things that I've seen a lot of arguments or let's say debates about is minimum viable product. And Ah. so, you know, I, well, I'm not going to say what camp I'm in. I'm interested to hear what your opinion of the minimum viable product concept is. Like how minimum are we talking? (laughs) Okay. So, I, I have an entire chapter on this. Um, oh, great. Okay. The, uh, the, the concept of minimal, minimum viable product is actually, I would say, widely misunderstood by most people. Um, and what the problem is, is that people look at minimum viable product and they say, oh, well, it's got the word product in it. So it must mean, what is the smallest thing that I can build? that people are going to buy. And that's not actually true. That's If you go look up the definition of minimum viable product and look it up in Wikipedia and um, you know anywhere where there's an actual definition of what it means, that's not what it means at all. It has nothing to do with building a product. What it actually is, is minimum viable product applies to a situation where you're trying to answer a question. And you can't define what the MVP for that is going to be until you have the question. So if your question is, what is the smallest thing that people are going to pay for, then you're talking about something like features. But if you're talking about, you know, should I be shipping this particular feature? Well, 
how do you test that? You know, what is the smallest amount of work that you can do to test that particular thing? And the problem is that this, it's, uh, as I said, it's just widely misunderstood that it relates to the building of a product. And that's not true. Hmm. Um, It has a lot more to do with identifying a question. And then once you've identified a question, then you define what the MVP is. But you can't define what the MVP is until you have that question. What is the what is the thing you're trying to test? Okay, but coming back to what we think of as minimum viable product, what what people generally so people are misunderstanding it, but they have a concept, and their concept is how much do I have to build? So then yes. my then my question to you is how much do people have to build to to release, and how do you determine that? Uh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> and it and it's, has more to do with the phrasing of it than anything else because, you know, it depends on the the situation that you're in. It depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, depends on the people involved too. I mean, if you're talking to an enterprise customer, they're going to have much higher expectations than like an SMB customer or a freelancer, for example. No, but okay, okay. Let's run. I, what I'm sick of is people saying, oh, I released this, I released this, and then you go and use it. And it's just... It's just basically smoke and mirrors. It's basically like, you know, like all these Kickstarters and you have to wait two years before you get it. And then lots of uh, bootstrappers who create things and it's, they, they have a great concept, but it just really doesn't live up to it in any way. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it would take them like three to six months to build the real thing. So what, you know, what do all us poor suckers do for those six months while they're sitting there building it? You mean the people who signed up for it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're kind of out of luck at that point because there's there's a balance that you have to strike. But should between. they have released it? Um, I think that there's value in it for the developer to release it, but not necessarily for the customers that tried it <laughs> and said this sucks. You <laughs> <Well>, know, <laughs> so <laughs> because it's all a learning process. But like, isn't there another model? I mean, isn't there some way that we can find people we we can find people to test it who aren't going to be pissed off? But. At the end of the day, you have to look at the fact that there are going to be customers that are going to churn out of your entire sales and marketing uh, system. They're just not going to stick with it. And even the the people that you initially work with, the fact is that probably most of them are not going to stick with you for very long because they're going to try it out. They're going to be excited. And then they're going to realize that there's all these limitations. So they're going to churn out. They're going to go find something else. But in the meantime, you're still finding other people who are going to try your product and check it out. And over time, as those early adopters, I'll say, move out and you get new people in, those new people are going to see new features that weren't there for the very, very early adopters. So it's just as it's essentially like a continuum, a stream of of incoming customers, and the early ones you're probably going to lose much faster than you do the later ones. Okay, so in that case, how much do you listen to the feedback of that stream? Like, do you listen to the early ones less, or do you listen to them more, or do you, is there some way to categorize who whose features you should be building? I mean, how does that work? So you listen to the people who are paying you the most <laughs> ah. because everyone's going to pa- everyone's going to have a comment uh, or an opinion on what you should do. Uh, you know, there's always going to be people who say, well, I would buy it if you did this. And then, you know, they don't. Um, I've, uh, I've seen it happen a lot. I mean, even with some of my own products where I've said, oh, you know, is this something you would pay for? And they say, yeah, I absolutely would. If you do this, I'll pay for it. And then you get to the point where you've implemented that. And then you go back to them. They're like, well, what about this other thing? Like, there's always these other things that are going to come back and bite you. So it's the people who have actually given you money. I would listen to them first and then start listening to the other people who, you know, are, are saying they would except for X, Y, or Z. Um, and you have to take everything that they say with a grain of salt. That's the 
that's the other problem because not all of them are telling the truth. So a huge mistake that I made with Plugio was, and, and you know, once again, this this has really helped informed my future direction. Um, was I started with a ten dollar price point on a SaaS app, mm-hmm. and so all the customers that I had were ten dollar customers, and they, they were the guys giving me the feedback. So right. what what would you advise to people who were thinking about going down that path? So I would probably I'm I'm not sure if I would have actually gone out and built Plugio because it seems to me more like a consumer application, um, B2C. Mm-hmm. Um, well, talk, if, talk through that a little bit. Sure. So with a B2C application, you're dealing with customers' wallets directly, and it's their own money that they're seeing go out of their pockets. So your ability to charge them more is severely hindered by the, by the amount of money that they make on a monthly basis. Versus a business where if you're providing you know, at least some form of value to them in terms of social networking, you can charge them 50 or $100 a month. And if you look at Buffer, for example, um, you know, they have, they have plans that are 50 or $100 a month and they have people buying them and, and it's not a problem for them. So the, the businesses that are investing in those solutions say, oh, well, $50 or $100 a month is no big deal in order to, for us to get this functionality to be able to manage our social presence on a grand scale. A, a consumer does not have that problem and it doesn't have it at that scale either. So you're able to charge those businesses significantly more and they're going to stick around longer because it's not their money for the most part. The people who are buying it. They're also not paying so much attention, right? Yeah, they're not paying nearly as much attention to it versus people like you and me, if we're paying for it out of our own pockets, then we might say, oh, well, I could go out to dinner a couple of times you know, for this particular price. And, uh, and, it, and it's not worth that much to me. I'm glad that you bring going out to dinner up because I, I, I've noticed that there are, people have very strange opinions about what is a lot of money and what isn't a lot of money. For example, people will often go out to dinner for... I don't know, 40 bucks and they'll, they'll drop that. I mean, I'm not saying all people, but a lot of sure. people will, right? That's just no issue. 40 bucks for a meal. Mm-hmm. For some reason, that's a totally accepted price point just to spend those few hours eating that thing. Yep. But yet buying a piece of software for 40 bucks seems ridiculously expensive. How is yes. that even possible? I mean, how, how did that come about? I think that that's a difference in how much consumers pay for software. Um, and I'll, I'll throw out a statistic and I don't know how true this is. I'll, I'll preface it by saying that, but I was talking to somebody who uh, was essentially had gone down the path of trying to do a B2C app. And they told me that afterwards they essentially took the the B2C app and they moved it into the B2B area. And the, the reason for doing that was because they've came across a statistic that essentially showed that something like 96% of all software sold is B2B. Um, mm. And it's and, the, and part of the problem with it is the fact that consumers don't pay for software. If somebody gets a like Microsoft Office, for example, typically their employer bought it for them. So they don't see the two or $300 that it costs them to buy Microsoft Office. Um, and all the software that they use on their laptops, they a lot of times they will use it also at work. So the employer pays for it. The, the vast majority of the software that people use, they're not paying for it. So to them, it, and it also kind of goes down to software piracy. It's like, well, why should I pay for this? You know, I can, I can just find some free solution out there. And they have the consumer mindset, which is I have free time on my hands to go out and look for something that's free or, and developers have this too. It's like, oh, open source stuff. It's out there. I can just do that. 
but there's a huge opportunity cost for a business to have to go through those steps to, you know, go out, find something, see if it works, you know, sift through any uh, problems with it or, you know, deal with anything that costs them an additional amount of time. Um, and the businesses aren't willing to deal with that. The absolute worst is on the app store when you see people, you know, raving, I can't believe I paid 99 cents for this. <laughs> it's like, yes, that's crazy. It's crazy. And of course, the developer only got 70 cents of that 99 cents because of Apple's 30% cut that they take off the top. There's a definite, you know, mindset shift between consumers and businesses. So, uh, you know, with, with businesses, you can charge a lot more. And when you start going in and you're selling software to businesses versus to consumers, you can take them a little bit more seriously, especially when you start charging them more money. Um, and I, and I think that's one of the things that in general, I would recommend is charge as much as you can possibly get away with, because you want not necessarily just to deal with as few customers as possible, but you want them to take you seriously. If you're not charging enough, then people aren't going to take you seriously. So is this the answer to the question, how to deal with people paying $10 and then, um, asking you to add new features? Basically the answer to the question is don't do that. I, yeah, I, w- I don't even know as I would offer a price point at the $10 level that would attract those people. So, um, and I'll, I'll relate a story back about MicroConf. The first year that we held MicroConf, we charged $500 for tickets. And the, the, we, we actually struggled to get people there for the first year. Um, there were a lot of people who came to MicroConf where, you know, when they, when they signed up, we were having tr- trouble getting people there. And we said, hey, bring a friend for $99. And what happened was we ended up with... I mean, don't get me wrong, it was a great crowd. It was a great start for MicroConf. But at the same time, we also attracted the wrong type of person. We attracted all the people who were, you know, wantrepreneurs. They they were interested in it, but they weren't necessarily serious about it. And, you know, we ended up with all these people who said, hey, I love this place. I'll be back next year. And a lot of them didn't come back because they weren't necessarily serious about it. But when you charge more, that changes. And the second year that we held MicroConf, we charged more. The third year we char- held, charged more. Um, and we ended up in this price point range where between the $700 and $800 price range for a ticket to MicroConf, you've essentially filtered out all of the people who are sort of serious, but not really. Um, and I think that that's the, you get the exact same effect when you're looking at any sort of B2B software where you're going to filter out all the people who are not necessarily serious about it. And those support problems tend to go away. Can you think of any exceptions to the rule uh, with the consumer stuff, stuff that it kind of might be okay to do? Um, I think that there are probably plenty of exceptions, but I don't necessarily think that there's too many that are related to like bootstrap software entrepreneur. Um, mm, okay. If you have like a personal brand, that might be different. Uh, the one that I can think of off the top of my head, and I know I don't know too much about their business model, um, but is uh, Happy Herbivore, and it's run by uh, Lindsay Nixon, I believe. Um, Lindsay and Scott Nixon are behind it, and they essentially sell meal plans and a variety of other things to uh, people who have uh, who are vegetarian and vegan lifestyle. Um, who are vegetarian and vegan, and they have all these different meal plans that you can purchase. And I believe that the price points are fairly low, but it's also a a fairly personal brand-driven business, whereas Lindsay is behind it, and without her face there, the business would kind of fall apart. And it's not to say that there's no value in it behind it. Interesting, yeah, personal brand, personal brands, yeah, that's yeah, that. think- so that, that's kind of like the internet market, marketing crowd kind of thing. Right, but at the same time, that's an exception. 
So just because something exists doesn't mean that that's a general rule you can follow. What do you think of the whole, you know, internet marketer where they kind of build info products, which they sell, which teaches you how to be an, an internet marketer? I don't think there's any issue with it, to be honest. Um, I, I definitely think there are ones out there that do a scammy job of it, I'll say, um, and are not necessarily trustworthy. And, you know, that that can definitely turn around and bite you, in, you know, at some point in, down in the road. In the ass. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that, but I was trying to be nice about it. Um, but yeah, the uh, I... I I don't see anything wrong inherently with building info products. I mean, you know, the the single founder handbook is an info product if you want to take a look at it. The the problem that most people have is that um, if you're trying to build like a software based business, for example, you're like, oh, I'm not going to write a book. Why would I write a book? It's not software. And people, you know, especially software entrepreneurs get this in their head that the only type of product they can come out with is software. And the reality is that there's all these other things that you can build or, or offer to your customers or your prospects, which are not software related, that they are going to value. So for example, a training course or an ebook or white papers, things like that. Most entrepreneurs don't want to do those things, but they add value to the, the, to the business arrangement between you and your prospects. It helps you with your marketing collateral because it helps move people from just mildly or vaguely interested to, oh, I trust this person to, oh, I'm going to pay this person because now I believe that they have a solution that is going to offer value to me. When you start, when you start with a business and you have a, the idea of a business in your mind and you think, okay, I'm going to bootstrap this thing. I'm going to be a solopreneur. What kind of goals do you think that people should have? Should they be thinking, I'm going to try and build something like buysellads.com or Buffer that's going to turn into like this million dollar business? Or should we be thinking, I'm going to build something like Plugio that's going to earn three grand a month? I think it depends on what situation you're in. Um, I, I think I, early on, I, I don't necessarily think that you should be shooting for the moon. Um, you know, the, the proverbial Google moonshots are probably not the best idea to go for, especially, especially out of the gate, because you're still learning. Um, and you're doing a lot of things that you've never done before, and you're unsure of them, and you don't know how they're going to work out. And the reality is you have to learn through those things. and You have to make a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, and there are definitely people out there who you, you look at them, they're wildly successful and you say, oh, I could do that. But, you know, they're exceptions. They're not the general rule that most of us are going to be able to do. And your limiting factors tend to be time and money. So you have to be a little bit more realistic, I think, about what it is that you're trying to achieve and take those baby steps. Because if you're trying to, you know, if you look at entrepreneurship as essentially this ladder where you're trying to build up. Um, you know, you know, build upon your previous successes. And I think Rob Wallen talks about this in his stair-step pro- approach quite often, is that, you know, if you build a small product and then you leverage the money that you get from that into another product, and then you build that up and you leverage it into another product that's a little bit better and makes more money, if you look at that ladder approach or stair-step approach, it works because you acquire all of this knowledge early on and your mistakes are much smaller and nobody notices them. And then as you grow and as you get more experienced, you can do bigger things and you're more confident of the things that you were doing. You know, when I started Plugio, I'd been, for I guess, 10 years trying to build start- funded startups and I'd got absolutely nowhere. And so one of the big reasons for me for doing Plugio was it's kind of like if you're in a big corporation, you start at the mailroom and then mm-hmm. you kind of you work your way up. So you see every component of the business. So my, th- my thesis was, 
okay, look, I'm, I'm having no success getting funding. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn how to build this tiny little thing so I can see all of the marketing aspects, what it's like to work with the customers. And then I'll take that. And then I guess you, the stair ladder step thing that you're talking about. Yep. Um, I mean, is that a good way to look at it? I think that is a good way to look at it. Just like I said, just because you you get to learn things along the way that you otherwise wouldn't have have been able to learn. And I think that if you try and skip major pieces along the way, then you're either going to get really lucky and you will succeed, but you had no idea what you were doing, um, and it was more luck than anything else. And maybe that'll work out in the long term, but maybe it won't. But I've seen entrepreneurs who went out, they built something and they hit a home run and then they have a string of four or five failures in a row because they got wildly lucky their first time out and they have no idea how to replicate that success. So are we but saying I, that every entrepreneur should go and build a tiny little micro business and just kind of uh, wet their teeth on that before they not, do anything? Yeah, I'm not saying everyone should do it. Um, I, I think that that's a good strategy that will generally work for most people. But there are definitely people out there who have the ability and the uh, you know the the type of personality that is more in tune with marketing than you know your standard developer who sits in a dungeon all day and codes. Um, and I think that that's probably the difference between those two two types of people. Like if you're if you're completely okay trying new things and you're not tied to the outcome of them, then I think you can definitely try the things a little bit faster and do bigger things because you're not as tied to the outcome. But if you are a little bit more fearful and you have these aspects of it that you're not you're not sure about and you're you know kind of hung up on those types of things about your you know little miniature successes and failures then i think that taking those baby steps is probably the better way to go so regarding ideas there's two different at the two ends of the part of the kind of extremes one of them is that the idea is super important and you think of your idea and you you get really attached to it and then at the other end of the extreme is the amy hoy version where ideas absolutely don't matter in the slightest and you just Go and research a market, and base, and you you just let the idea emerge from the market that's already exists. Where where do you stand on that? On those between those two extremes? Uh, probably in the middle somewhere. <laughs> the um, and why? I, I, well, I think that the when you're looking at ideas, you have to have something that's solving a problem for some people. And I think that the reason some people will look at the the idea and say, oh, well, you have to be very passionate about the idea is because passion will help you with motivation when times get tough. Um, but the other side of the spectrum is that, you know, if you take the Amy Hoy stance on it, if you go out there and you identify something that people are absolutely having a problem with, then it is easier to go down that path because you have hard data in front of you that shows you that people are willing to pay for it. So when times get tough, you can go back and you can look at that data and you realize that, hey, just because I'm having a hard time with this doesn't mean that this isn't going to work. I've got the data here that shows that it is and these people are willing to pay for it and I have these pre-orders or what have you. You know, there's there's all the data that goes with it versus the other side of it, which is purely motivational where you've, you know, you've got the madness about it. You have to get this out and you know what's going to be best for the world and you just plow through that work because you've got the motivation to be able to do it. Both of those extremes, I'll say, are about solving a motivation problem. It's not actually about the idea. It's about solving a motivation problem that you're probably going to encounter in the middle of it. Everyone says solve a problem, solve a problem, but there's so many businesses that don't solve problems that are <laughs> fucking hugely successful. Like, for example, Grubhub, right? I mean, I, like, I guess it can solve a problem for a few people, but you know, for most people, I mean, 
why why do they use it? I guess it's just more convenient. Oh, well, I've I've used Grubhub before, um, I and mean, I. I used it because it was convenient. I just I had work to do and I didn't feel like going out. So it's um, a vi- it's a vitamin, right? Yeah, vi- kind of been vit- vitamin yeah. versus a painkiller, and and I mean I don't know Netflix or Spotify. I mean there's there's loads of things that just do not solve problems that are very successful. Oh, I see, I yeah I see what you're saying. Um, I I think that it can it can work either way. It's just that you have to have the marketing plans and strategies in place in order to be able to overcome the challenges that, you know, are going to get in your way. So as you said, for, for example, for Grubhub, you know, do I need to order out and do I need to have them come deliver it? No, I don't. I could go get it myself, but there are going to be a subset of people who do have that problem. And in many ways, it's, it's limiting to some extent as to what the size of your market is, but that's not necessarily a bad thing either because you can essentially niche down your market and say, okay, I'm only serving these people and I'm going to exclude any features or any functionality or any services that do not serve this one core group of people. Hmm. So, I mean, would you say, just going back to the problem thing, so talking about something like, I don't know, a Spotify or something like that, would you say that there's absolutely no point in building anything that isn't a problem? If you're a solopreneur, um, I don't think so. I mean, the, you if you look at what the the underlying issue is that you're trying to solve. I mean, because obviously the, the software has to solve some sort of a problem. Um, is it a critical problem for the customer? Probably not. Um, but you know, some people are, some people did look at that and say, I desperately need a solution for that. Um, I actually. I think that it's useful to set down like a list of you know pros, cons, and disqualifiers for different ideas. So what you're doing is essentially you say, um, you know, what are the pros associated with this idea? What are the cons associated with this idea? And what are the things that do not match my personality or my end goals that are going to take this idea and say this is not going to work for me? For example, so uh, it, let's let's take an example. Let's say you want to run a a location independent software business. Um, if you're going to go down the path with an idea where your customers are going to want and expect to have phone support, it's going to be very difficult to do that unless you're willing to also go down the path of hiring somebody who's going to be available from nine to five. And in the very beginning, you're not going to have the the resources to be able to do that. So you could say, well, I'll just do email support. Um, but again, you're starting to make compromises. So I think it's useful to essentially assign scores, not just not just say this is a pro and this is a con, but assign each of them a, a numeric score so that you can rank your ideas against one another. So you, you, so I, I take it you're of this school, the school where <clears throat> you think of a lot of ideas and then you whittle them down to one and you don't really do it by the Amy Hoy method of looking at a market. I don't think you necessarily whittle it down to one. You whittle it down to a handful that you then test because it's very easy to kind of mentally lock in on a single idea that you think is the best and then go with it without testing it adequately to figure out whether or not you're going to get enough traction with it to make it worthwhile for you. So how do you kind of think of a random idea and then say, okay, now I'm going to find a market for it? Well, I think it's a progression. So you essentially, you brainstorm a bunch of ideas and then you go through those ideas and you say which ones you think are going to have the best chance of, of success and which ones are most likely to fail. And then once you get them down to a short list, essentially you just rank them and then you start doing tests on them to figure out which one's going to get the most traction as quickly as possible because you don't want to spend too much time going out and uh, trying to 
make an idea work when the idea right next to it is going to work 10 times better and 10 times faster. I guess the point I'm getting at is that you've thought of an idea that you like yep. and, you, and you're testing it. But what's the, you know, who's to say that you're testing it in completely the wrong way? I mean, you may be testing it using Google Ads and a landing page, but you should be testing it using Facebook or you should be testing it by going and talking to people on the street in Pasadena. Like, how, how do you even know that you're testing it in the right way? Um, that's an almost impossible question to answer because essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to put yourself in a situation where you're saying, okay, what is the, what is the optimal um, – what is the optimal decision that I can make here about what marketing channels I should use? And if you take a look over at uh, Gabriel Weinberg has a, a very good book called Traction. Um, he wrote it with Justin Maris and the, you can find it at tractionbook.com, I believe. And it lists 19 different traction channels that you can try for virtually any business. So if you take a look at any business idea and you, you start evaluating the idea and say, okay, which are the three most likely traction ideas that I should try? Which traction channels do I think are going to work? And you go out and you try those three. And then you come back to it, you analyze it. And if none of those three things pan out, then maybe you try three other ones and maybe you try another three after that. Eventually you have to give up on it, but you, you need to try different things. I, I get what you're saying because there are situations where, you know, maybe a Facebook ad would work twice as well than Twitter, for example. Um, and I actually found for my book, I found that uh, I was able to get eight times as many leads from Twitter advertising as I was through Facebook ads. Huh. Uh, but you wouldn't know unless you tried them side by side. It's, a, it, it's another one of those situations where if you're an entrepreneur your your limited knowledge or awareness of the things around you is actually a, a very big struggle because you don't have a basis for comparison. As soon as you start testing multiple things at the same time, now you have a basis for comparing these two things or three things against one another, and you can figure out which one is the most reasonable and whether or not, you know, like if they're all close, then you can say, okay, well, these three ideas, these three different tra traction channels that I'm trying out, none of them are working very well and I'm not getting the results that I need. Maybe I need to try three completely different ones or maybe I just need to dish this idea entirely because it's not going to fly. But if you have one that's outperforming the others by you know, two, three, five, ten X, it's a very, very different story. I feel like that's the thing that needs, we need to gamify in our minds. Um, well, certainly for me, like going out and running tests on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, I mean, seems to me to be the most boring thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I think somehow we need to work out how to make that less boring. I mean, I, I just, I, for example, Jason would never, ever do that. Never. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, and so that, you know, that probably stunts him and probably stunts me quite a lot as well. Um, maybe. I mean, I, what I did was I just approached it from the standpoint of like, I'm going to try these out because I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know like what my acquisition strategy is. Um, I think another issue that a lot of entrepreneurs go into is they, they, or they come across is that they build something and then they don't know how they're going to sell it. They don't know how to get in front of customers. And the challenge for developers is actually not that they can't build the product, you know, like, cause we're developers. That's what we do is we build stuff. But how do you get it in front of customers? How do you, you know, be able to establish a sales and marketing channel or a system such that you are continuously acquiring new customers? And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter how good or bad your product is because nobody's ever going to buy it. So you have a section in the book called routine maintenance. And when I first looked at that, I thought what that was going to be talking about was maintaining your servers, looking after your app. 
But actually, it's got interesting headings like physical maintenance and intellectual maintenance. Mm -hmm. I'd love you to talk about that a little. Sure. So the idea behind this section was that, you know, as as an entrepreneur, you're not necessarily just looking out for your business, but you also have to look out for yourself. And, you know, the purpose of your business is is to essentially serve you. It's not necessarily the other way around. And I wrote this section because I got a lot of questions from people about how do I, how do I maintain my emotional mindset and, you know, how do I you know, maintain my sanity while I'm, you know, going through this path. And what I realized was that I wasn't necessarily the only one who'd had struggles like this, but there were a lot of people who felt the same ways about it. So I essentially wrote down uh, uh, kind of a lot of tips and advice and tricks about how to maintain not just your physical health, but your mental health as well. And I think that that's an issue that is not necessarily widely talked about it. Uh, it's not necessarily widely talked about in entrepreneurial circles. I think that um, Greg Baggies had done a, uh, a talk at the Business of Software this past year about having ADHD and bipolar disorder. And until that time, I don't think I'd ever seen anybody get up on the stage and, and start talking about the mental side of being a developer or an entrepreneur. And it was very fascinating to watch him talk about it. And I've, I mean, I've had issues myself. I mean, I was diagnosed with low testosterone about a year and a half ago. And the, you know, there's a huge number of issues that you can uh, come across as a result of that. There's like a list of 10 or 12 or 15 of them. Um, but, you know, not just to steer the direction of the conversation into low testosterone, but <laughs> the fact is that there's tons of hormone problems. Like our bodies are governed by hormones. So, we're, and, and they're all interrelated between both our physical and our mental health. So, Take, for example, if you're not getting enough sleep at night, if you're only getting five hours of sleep a night for five consecutive nights, then statistically, you are essentially acting at the end of those five days as if you are have a 0.08 blood alcohol level. So you're drunk after five, after five days of only about five hours of sleep a night. Well, how many hours should you get? Uh, you know, it, it's widely accepted to be seven or eight. But, you know, it, it, it depends a little bit on the person as well. So there's, there's these ranges that people fall into. So it's not just, it's not just sleep, but it's things like eating, it's uh, exercise, um, you, know, it, you know, those are kind of the three pillars of your physical health. But those, the, the physical health kind of bleeds over into your mental health. And if you're not running at 100%, then your business that you're starting, whether it's on the side or you're doing it full time, your business isn't running at 100% either. So I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that it's only running at 50% because you're pulling all-nighters and trying to get things done. Well, those 10 hours or 20 hours that you set aside over the weekend, you're only about 50% effective. So the 20 hours that you spent, you're really only getting 10 hours of work done. Um, and maybe not even that just because of you know excessive breaks and things like that. So do you really want to be wasting all that extra time doing stuff when you're not making any progress? And the answer is no. Because what will happen is that you'll put that extra time in and you, you've put in the 20 hours only at 50% and then you say, gosh, I've really got more work to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, put in extra hours on Monday night or Tuesday night as well. And instead of helping the problem and making it better, you're actually making it worse. So it becomes this snowball effect. And I think that a lot of people do this. I, I've definitely done it myself, but I've talked to other people who've kind of gone down this path as well, where they didn't take care of their physical health or their mental health, and they ran into some pretty major problems. I think that's, you know, it's really interesting what you're talking about, because I've been wondering how to deal with my own situation. I mean, I basically have a full-time job. I'm building a side project. We do the podcast. 
and I have a new, a, a new, well, recently newborn baby, eight months. And I do find myself like snatching moments to, to do code. Um, you know, when, I don't know, maybe between the hours of 11 and one or something like that. And I'm definitely, definitely feeling worn down at this stage, but I'm just not sure how to, um, how to combat it because there isn't anywhere to get the hours from. Yeah, that's, I think with a newborn, it's probably a lot tougher just because with a newborn, I mean, it's eight months isn't exactly newborn, but still with a young child, it's, it's hard um, because you try to get those, that time in when you can. Um, yeah. But it's also about scheduling things and making sure that when you are able to work, you're able to put in the most productive amount of time that you can, because if you're not productive during that time, it was wasted time. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of working for me. I mean, I'm walking around a bit like a zombie, but you know, I'm getting it done. That's the main point. Well, it, it, it may not be getting done as well as if you cut back on a lot of things as well. That's true. I, I'd love to cut back on like having to work a full a full time job, but <laughs> I don't think I can. No. So, so um, also in your routine maintenance, you say you have a section for personal retreats, and I'm kind of intrigued. What's that about? So this is a concept that was uh, brought up by uh, Sherry Walling, who's Rob, Rob Walling's wife. Um, she brought it up at MicroConf back in 2014, and she'd been doing them for several years. But the idea behind a personal retreat is that essentially you take you know, 48 hours or so to essentially just get away. So uh, what I've done before is just take a, take a two-day retreat at like a hotel or something like that. I used to own a cottage in the Adirondacks, and I've gone up there before. And you basically just sit down and think. Um, no electronics, no TV, uh, no internet, no email. Try and cut yourself off completely from the outside world. Um, I used an iPad to take notes and stuff, but uh, it wasn't connected to the internet. So I could essentially segregate myself from the rest of the world and not have to worry about it. And you just sit there and think. You think about what it is that you, you're trying to achieve, what are you having problems with, uh, what sorts of goals you have, what you'd like to do in the next year. And it's very therapeutic. It's very helpful to kind of go through that exercise and essentially evaluate your life. It's like, are you even happy? Are you, are you doing the types of things that you want to do? So, and if you're not, then you need to do something about it. And whatever, you know, that, whatever doing something about it means is, you know, is up to the individual. There's a, they do a whole episode on uh, the Zen Founder podcast that if anyone's interested in, I would definitely go out and check that out. If you're interested in doing a personal retreat of any kind, they talk a lot about the structure of it, what you should do, how you talk about it, et cetera. Well, Mike, it's been so great to have you on the show. Um, I guess uh, I'll just love to promote your your book again, The Single Founder Handbook, a step-by-step guide for bootstrap software entrepreneurs. Now, when when's it actually going to be released and where should people go to get this amazing book? So it'll be out on uh, Tuesday, which I believe is uh, May 5th. And uh, you can just go to singlefounderhandbook.com and all the information is there. There's, uh, there's a couple of different things you can get. You can get the book. There's a book with uh, the, there's actually a physical book as well that you can get. And uh, there's, a, there's an audio version of it. And then I also have a series of videos from people like uh, Gabriel Weinberg, uh, Sherry Walling, uh, Josh Ledgard, uh, Patrick McKenzie, Brian Castle, all, all kinds of different people who are kind of well-known in the bootstrapped entrepreneur community who have were essentially were kind enough to sit down and agree to do a video interview with me. Uh, to We're kind enough to do a video interview with me for the book. That's great. you got some big names there. Nicely done. Thank you. So, um, okay, well... Um I guess, I guess, uh, as Jason would say, we should uh, end this end the show, and um, I guess that's a wrap. Yep. Thanks for having me, Justin.